When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept the secret of her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bignathar and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the Book of the Annals in the presence of the king. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about this, whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated. For he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pur, that is, the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples of all the provinces in your kingdom whose customs are different from all the other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, said the king to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. They were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adol, excuse me, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of that edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's commands, 
the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. That's the reading. I haven't got the thing that says that. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, look, thank you, everyone. You don't have to clap for me. It's just, I'm just coming up here doing my job. That's all. Thank you, and so sorry about that misunderstanding. <clears throat> uh, that is the passage. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, let me add my welcome to Luke's. It's great to have you here on such a, a miserable morning. And um, welcome to you, Luke. Most people won't know this, but Luke yesterday had a, a biking accident, and as well as the shiner you may have seen has broken his elbow, and he's still up here leading our service this morning, so thank you, Luke. I feel a bit of a fraud being up here this morning. The one comment I've heard more than any other since the quiz last night is that my team, if I can call it my team, which had Joel, our assistant minister, and me, apparently a bishop, came last in the Bible round last <laughs> night. So I do want to just publicly exonerate Joel. <laughs> there were a number of times Joel had it right and I overruled him. <laughs> and we came last in that round. So uh, thank you very much for those who put the quiz together last night. It was a great fun for those who were there. Thank you, Aaron and Jesse, who put it together, and Josh, who helped run things. I thought Jacob and Kate did a great job emceeing. I particularly liked, my favourite answer was Graham Gay saying Oscar De La Hoya. The worst answer of the night was actually mine. And now they, they did a round which was name the picture and the, on the, the last one it just showed some eyes and Jacob said this is our favourite question of the day I looked at the picture knew exactly who it was but I don't like to say these things out loud because other teams cheat and they listen so I just wrote the answer down Sigourney Weaver <laughs> showed my whole team and they're all looking at me like I'm the thickest person in the world and it did occur to me I wonder why Jacob said this is their favourite question are they passionate about Sigourney Weaver and um, in the Preston family? It turns out it was Katie Bennett. <laughs> Not just that it's Katie Bennett from our church, she was in my team. <laughs> Not just in my team, she was sitting opposite me. I'd literally been looking in her eyes all night and I was convinced it was Sigourney Weaver. I obviously, I can't read eyes apparently because the first one, someone in our team said, oh, that's the Queen. And I said, it's a man, you muppet. <laughs> anyway. Right, let's pray. It was a good night. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, very much that uh, despite the, the miserable weather outside, we and the dry and the warm can come together this morning as your people and hear your word. And Father, we pray that we wouldn't just hear your word with our ears this morning, but by your spirit, you may use it to strengthen our hearts, to um, change our wills, uh, to make us more and more like the Lord Jesus. So please be at work in a wonderful and mighty way this morning, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Luke said, uh, this morning, uh, the last week, we began a new series in the book of Esther. And uh, Esther is a cracking story. If you don't know it, it's, a, it's a, a great story. It's full of intrigue, full of danger, full of controversial parts. We saw some of that last week. We see characters that we support and characters that we, uh, we can't stand. In fact, when Jews hear the, the book of Esther read down through the ages, they boo when they hear the name of Haman, the, the character we were introduced in this morning. Uh, but because it's our second one and we're building on last week, and you may not have been here last week, previously in Esther... 
We're in the Persian Empire as we uh, look at this book. We're at a time in history when the Jews, most of the Jews, are back in the promised land. Because you'll remember Babylon had overtaken Israel, they'd taken the Jews out, they'd destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, but then Persia had come in and Persia had overtaken Babylon. And they'd freed the Israelites and most of the Israelites had gone back to the promised land, gone back to the place where they could now begin to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But not all the Jews had gone back to the promised land. And so Esther tells the story of a small Jewish community that had remained in the Persian Empire. And in our story, in Esther, it will focus on two Jews in particular. We met them last week, Mordecai and his cousin Esther. And although they're cousins, Esther is more like a daughter to Mordecai because Mordecai had raised her since she was a young girl when her parents had died. The setting of our story is in Susa. Susa is the capital of the Persian Empire. And last week, as well as meeting Mordecai and Esther, we met the king of the Persian Empire, a guy called Xerxes. And Xerxes was unbelievably wealthy and unbelievably powerful. Uh, He also liked to show people that he was unbelievably wealthy and unbelievably powerful. Uh, Unfortunately, his wealth and power was not matched by wisdom or good character. Last week we saw him flashing his wealth and power in incredible parties before all the people. But we then saw him get humiliated publicly uh, by his wife. And then, incensed by that and following terrible advice that he was given by other people, he got rid of his wife and sought to replace her, to get a new queen. And he did what's commonly called a beauty competition. the one chosen to be the new queen of Xerxes. She was appointed. So we pick up the story this morning back in chapter 2, verse 19. But it's a funny passage this morning. We should really kind of go through almost to the end of chapter 4 because that's what brings some resolution. So I feel like I'm, I'm stopping it this morning halfway through. So I don't really have any main points not the best start to a talk, is it? But what we're going to do is I'm going to take us through the reading in a bit more detail. Uh, We'll pick out a few things to just focus on. Then I've got three kind of minor points. I'm not pretending they're the main points, but we'll be looking at them next week. Three more minor points that we get from these verses. So let's go through the passage. And we're told at the beginning, verse 19, that the virgins have assembled again. Now, we're not told why, but that's not the key thing. The key thing is while they've assembled again, Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. Now, the king's gate is going to come up many times in these verses. And you could wonder, well, why does the king's gate keep coming up? Why is that the big hot spot where everything seems to happen? The king's gate was not just a place on the outskirts of the city. The king's gate was central in the city of Susa, and it was the place where the courts of the land were. So this is a place, the, the, the city gates, where uh, the king's gates, where lots of things goes on. This is where influential people ply their trade. This is where important conversations are had and where business is done. But just before we find out what's going to happen at the king's gate, the author of the book reminds us, verse 20, Esther has kept the secret from last week. Remember, Mordecai, her uncle, had said, when you go to the palace, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. Keep it to yourself. And we find out here she's continued to do that. She hasn't told anyone. Her husband Xerxes doesn't know. No one else knows. And that will be important as we carry on in the book of Esther. So back to the gate. While Mordecai's there, 
he finds out about a plot to kill the king. Actually, two of King Xerxes' officials plot to kill him. Now, we're not told how Mordecai finds out, but we are told what he does with the information. He goes to Esther, who you remember is in the palace, and then Esther warns the king, giving credit to Mordecai, verse 22. The plot is then investigated, as it should be. It's found to be true, and the conspirators are executed. Mordecai has saved the king. He saved the king's life. But he's not rewarded. In those days, it was normal that you would reward someone who'd done such an incredible feat, such a wonderful feat, especially if you did it for someone so powerful and wealthy as Xerxes. But Mordecai is not rewarded. Instead, we're told, verse 23, the events are recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Now, spoiler alert, that's going to be crucial in the next few weeks as we keep going through Esther as well. It's not what was expected to happen, but this is what happens. Well, then we move into chapter 3, and it's clear that some time has passed between Mordecai saving the king's life, Xerxes, and everything else that happens. It starts after these events without saying how long it's gone by. But if you remember last week, chapter 1, verse 3, we saw this was the third year of the reign of King Xerxes. Now in chapter 3, verse 7, we're told it's the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign. So somewhere in between here, nine years has gone past. And I think the most likely part for that to have gone past is between chapter 2 and chapter 3. So in chapter 3, after this period of time, probably some years, we're introduced to the fourth of the four main characters that the book of Esther has. Remember, we've already met the two Jewish main characters, Mordecai and his cousin Esther. We've already met the Persian king, the, uh, the Persian king Xerxes. Now we're going to meet the other non-Jewish main character of the book of Esther, this person called Haman. Have a look at verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. We see Xerxes, the king, is about to honour Haman. We're not told why. Now, this is the same guy who didn't honour Mordecai when Mordecai saved his life. But for some reason, he's now honouring Haman. We also find out that Haman is not Persian either. He's what's called the Agagite. And we'll think about that in a few moments. And Haman the Agagite is now to be honoured above all other nobles in the Persian Empire. He's basically going to be the number two most important and powerful person in the whole of Persia. The king actually commands, you can see it there, that everyone is to honour Haman. But now the story kind of begins because Mordecai refuses. We're told a number of times in these verses that Mordecai will not bow the knee and pay honour to Haman as everyone else does. Now nowhere does it really get to the bottom and spell out why Mordecai refuses to bow the knee and honour Haman. But I think there's a couple of hints in the verses which we should be aware of if we know the scriptures, which I think give us a hint as to why he won't bow the knee and honour him. One hint is that when Mordecai refused to bow the knee and honour Haman, the, the officials at the city's gate, we're told in verse 3, tried to find out why. And more than that, they tried to get him to do it. Mordecai, bow the knee like everyone else, you'll get in trouble, that kind of thing. But the only thing they discover why, as to why Mordecai won't do it, end of verse 4 is, Mordecai's a Jew. So there seems to be something about being Jewish that means Mordecai feels uneasy about bowing the knee before Haman and honouring him like everyone else does. 
And it's not too hard to work out what's going on there. We know from the Old Testament law that Israelites were instructed not to bow before any other god. This period of time is well known in the book of Daniel. Remember Daniel, they're in exile in Babylon, and Daniel and his friends refused to bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar. Spell that word correctly and you'll get a... I got that wrong too last night. Uh, They refused to bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and got in trouble. So it could be a similar situation that's going on. Mordecai goes, no, I bow before God. I will not bow before Mordecai, uh, before Haman. But there's something else that's going on here too. And again, it's easy to miss if we're not familiar with Old Testament language and imagery. Haman has been described as the Agagite. Now, Agagite comes from the word Agag, and Agag is a character in the Old Testament. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. Should have had that in the quiz last night. I knew that one. Amalekites. Agag was the king of the Amalekites back in 1 Samuel. And Agag was responsible for the bringing down of the first king of Israel, Saul. There was a a kind of a battle between Saul and the Israelites, the people of God, and the Amalekites. Saul didn't do what he was supposed to do with Agag, and Saul fell out of favor with God as a result. Now, Mordecai was described in chapter 2 as being from the tribe of Benjamin and the son of Kish. As soon as you see that phrase, your your memory should go off. Because who's described in the Old Testament as from the tribe of Benjamin and the son of Kish. Saul, the first king of Israel. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was literally the son of Kish. And so you've got this odd thing where years before, Agag and Saul were kind of at battle, the people of God and the enemies of the people of God, and now we're being reminded of that again. The people of God with Mordecai and the enemies of the people of God with Haman. So that's what's going on in this little interplay. Anyway, Mordecai refuses to bow the knee and pay honour, and as you can imagine, Haman responds very well. Funny, isn't it? Everyone in the Persian Empire is bowing the knee to Haman, but the one person who doesn't, when he sees it, it infuriates him. It's true to life, isn't it? Verse 5 is a lot like we saw last week with Xerxes. When someone's ego is bruised, when someone's pride is wounded, then it just causes fury and massive overreactions, out-of-proportion reactions. It's very true to life. We see this, don't we? I see it in my own heart. When we feel humiliated or our fragile egos bumped, we can be at our worst. Xerxes did it last week when he felt his wife had done that. And so he was enraged and he listened to this ridiculous advice and then a a reaction way over the top. Haman does it here. It's one of the, the beautiful differences, isn't it, with Jesus. When he is wronged, when he, you could talk about his ego being bruised, instead he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he lays his life down for them. Well, Haman is enraged, so enraged that he doesn't just plan to kill Mordecai as, uh, uh, in consequence to this, but all the Jews throughout the whole Persian Empire. Then comes verse 7, and we know more time has passed, which makes it seem that Haman takes his time. He may be furious, but he's going to make sure that his plan works. He's not going to rush into something. 
And what he does next is a little hard to work out when you first read it because some of the words are unfamiliar. But what he does is he literally rolls the dice to work out which day he will kill the Jews. Uh, Per, in verse 7, or lot, in brackets, is the same kind of word that we would use for rolling dice. He's basically saying, let fate decide what day they will die. He's basically saying, let's leave it to chance. Let luck decide. This will be the date. This will be the day that we wipe out the Jews in the Persian Empire. So he rolls the dice and he works out which particular day the Jews will be killed. And then he goes to King Xerxes to make this plan happen. And look what he says to King Xerxes, verse 8. This is political manipulation 101. He says to him, Look, King Xerxes, there's certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all the other people, and they don't obey the king's laws. It's not in the, best, in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So if it pleases the king, let a decree, decree be issued to destroy them. And I'll put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out the business. Do you see what he's saying to Xerxes? It's a mixture of half-truths, exaggerations, and misdirection, all aimed to make King Xerxes think the Jews are a massive danger in his his kingdom. And he, Haman, is willing to put put his hand in his own pocket to pay for sorting out this problem. Don't worry about it, King Xerxes, I'll do that for you. But these are half truths. The Jews were not people who broke the king's orders. One guy, Mordecai, on one order, bowing down to Haman, was the, was the law that was being broken. It's very dodgy what's going on here by Haman to Xerxes. But the rest of the chapter tells the story of Xerxes agreeing to Haman's request. He gives him his signet ring, basically saying, you've now got my authority to put this into uh, action. And then Haman puts it into action. He sends round an edict to the whole empire with the instructions. And verse 13 makes clear how terrible the instructions are. I think Anne got a bit emotional reading it, and you should, because this will be the death of all the Jews, men, women, and children, all around the kingdom on one particular day, the day that the dice rolled. And at the end of the chapter, the king and Haman sit down to drink, seemingly unaffected by all this, while the rest of Susa are bewildered. Now, we're actually, we're actually going to find out what happens in chapter 4. That's the passage. We've kind of finished before it concludes on a knife edge. So come back next week. You'll see what happens. It's gripping stuff. So, But in the next few minutes, I just want to therefore draw out three things for us to consider. And I'd like to do it by looking at each of the three main characters. Esther, although the book's named after her, doesn't play much in the second half of chapter 2 and 3. She'll become more the focus as we carry on, but not so much in our verses today. But in the other three characters, let me just mention the character and one lesson that we can take from each of them. So firstly, I'd like you to think about Xerxes, the king. And the lesson that I think we should take from it is, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. As the people of God, as Christians, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, let's not be fools. Xerxes in this book is not really presented as an evil man, despite the fact that he's involved in some dark and unpleasant things. He's more portrayed as someone who foolishly takes advice from other people. He doesn't think through things for himself. He doesn't seem to be a man of principle or courage or conviction. He takes the easy way out, listening to the voice that's closest in his ear or loudest in his ear. He takes the expedient way, 
believes everything that's said to him. There should be a warning there for us as Christians, as people who follow Jesus. We should be people who don't just uncritically believe what we hear or trust what we hear, who just listen to the advice of others, whether it's the media or public opinion or work colleagues or friends or family, without thinking it through for ourselves, critically, alongside the Word of God. Too often today I worry that we as Christians are sheep following the same direction that everyone else is going. Or we're parrots speaking the same things that everyone else in the society is saying. We should learn from our mistakes. Right back at the garden, at the beginning of creation, we went wrong because we as human beings listened to the creation instead of the creator. When will we learn? I'm surprised and disappointed in myself and sometimes in us as as wider groups of Christians at how little thinking we do on our own and research we do as Christians. We need to think through the moral issues of the day from what God has to say to us, the social concerns of our time based on the word of God, political positions, and we we do all these things as Christians listening to God, not just listening to the loudest voice or the closest companion. Perhaps more now than in the last 50 years in New Zealand, we need Christians who are thinking, who are reading, and then who are speaking so that other Christians can hear, and who are acting, not just as they see everyone else do or parroting what else they hear, but but seeking the Lord's wisdom and guidance and putting it into practice. There's Xerxes. Xerxes is a fool here. Last week we saw, he he listened to the advisors who were experts in in the age, and they put him so wrong. Here, he's being put wrong by Haman. He's just listening to the people around him. We mustn't be fools as Christians. That's Xerxes. Secondly, we see Mordecai. Remember, Mordecai's not the baddie, even though the name sounds kind of... Mordecai's the goodie. Mordecai puts God first. He will not put anything or anyone before God. Uh, Mordecai must have known what it would be uh, or what he might face by not bowing the knee to Haman. Uh, like everyone else was doing. He must have known he would probably face difficulty for disobeying that law of the land. How about us as Christians? What do we put first? Take it, Haman, put, uh, Mordecai put the Lord first. What do we put first? For many of us, we put our happiness first, or peace, peace and quiet first, or stuff first or pleasure first, or relationships with others first, which is really the same as putting self first. We need to put God first. It's the way the Christian life is to be lived. Uh, I hope I'm not an alarmist, but um, I worry about the times we're in, in in our country right at the moment. We're in some dark times. Some of the legislation that it looks like going through in New Zealand is, I think, going to make it very hard to be a Christian in this country. The so-called hate speech bill, the so-called conversion therapy bill, are, I think, scary in terms of what they seek to achieve. How will Christians respond? Will we bow the knee or will we make a stand? We're going to have to think through things. There may be consequences to be faced. I believe that Christians today are going to become more and more out of step with the world around us. Therefore, we will face ridicule for being outdated. More seriously, we'll face exclusion and isolation for being different. 
but we could well uh, experience punishment for being faithful. What will we do? Mordecai wouldn't bow the knee. He put God first. So Xerxes, don't be a fool. Mordecai put God first. Thirdly, Haman, and the lesson I think we can learn from Haman is Haman didn't know God was in charge. And our verses, it's possible to think one of two things. Either you think Haman's in charge because he's doing all the manipulating, he's working behind the scenes to get what he wants to do uh, achieved, or you think it was just luck and fate. That's the rolling of the dice. And the rolling of the die, or the dice, or the die, is very important, and again, it's going to come up later on in Esther. But you either think, well, human beings, the wealthy and the powerful, they're the ones who control everything, or you end up thinking, well, it's just up to luck, it's all random, and you can't be sure of anything. And I'm not going to say too much on this because we're going to keep seeing it again and again in Esther and I don't want to steal thunder from other passages. But if you were reading through Esther, that's what you'll come to the conclusion of if you're just reading at surface level. That either it's the rich and the powerful who determine what's going to happen in this world or it's all up to luck and chance. The ones with power and wealth, they're the ones who make plans and execute their plans or, well, it just matters what what number of the die comes up. We can't be sure. But for the careful reader of Esther... Even though the name of God is not mentioned, we keep seeing these little seemingly insignificant things and the Christian reading Esther knows God's in control. Mordecai just happens to find out about the plot at the king's gate. Esther just happens to keep her identity as a Jew secret. That's going to be important. um, All these things, little bit, little bit, we will see these things happen And God uses them because he's in control and his people can always trust that he's in control. The small things, the seemingly insignificant or unimportant things. And the the lesson is for us, we can trust him. Things may look like they're in the hands of the rich and the powerful or they may look like they're random and you can't be sure of anything, but actually God's in control and his people can always trust him. I pray that you and I will know that God's in control. That we will see his hand at work in the small things. Sometimes you only see it afterwards. But if you see it, make a note of it and remember it. Because it reminds us for those other times when we feel like we can't see God's hand that he's still in control. He is in control. His plans will come about. It's all good in the end. We can only ever see a small part of what God's doing because it's just what we're involved in at this moment. Friends, know that he's got all things in his hands. We know how it ends, and it's a good ending. It's a good ending for his people. Hold on to that, be confident in it, and trust in it. Haman thought it was up to him. He was wrong. And so, can I encourage you? Encourage myself? Let's not be fools like Xerxes. Let's put God first, like Mordecai, And unlike Haman, let's know that God's in control and let's trust him. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the chance to be reminded of these truths this morning. And I pray that uh, you know where each of us are at in life. You know the things that we're facing, the things that we're going through. I pray that you may encourage us where we need that, challenge us where we need that. Draw us closer to yourself this morning through your word. And I pray that we would hold on to these truths and live them out. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.